certainly will be with our Lord and Savior, which will make that glorious, glorious time and forever. Praise the Lord. Would you turn your Bibles to Psalm 119, verse 73? Verse 73, this whole portion of the psalm down through verse 80 begins with that little tiny jot or yod is the Hebrew letter. Smallest Hebrew letter. And here we have another portion of instruction I believe, as I've studied this, the previous section, this section, that we're still on the theme, and I think it's apparent from some of the wording, is the theme of affliction. Uh, so let's read from verse 73 down through verse 80. The psalmist writes, Your hands made me and fashioned me. Give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. May those who fear you see me and be glad, because I wait for your word. I know, O Lord, that your judgments are righteous, and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. O may your loving kindness comfort me according to your word to your servant. May your compassion come to me that I may live, for your law is my delight. May the arrogant be ashamed, for they subvert me with a lie, but I shall meditate on your precepts. May those who fear you turn to me, even those who know your testimonies. May my heart be blameless in your statutes so that I will not be ashamed. I say, I believe we're still on the theme of affliction. In studying some of these stanzas, it really does take reflection upon the context as well as within the stanza, trying to see if there are any statements where what the psalmist is communicating are together. There is a theme that he's constructing. I think you can see that he is interested in not just himself in this stanza, but also those who fear God. See that in verse 74. May those who fear you see me. So it's not just him. Again, verse 79, may those who fear you turn to me. But there are also some things just for him. He's praying to God. He's asking multiple petitions from God. He is seeking understanding from God. He desires to be a source of joy to others. He is seeking comfort from God, compassion from God. He's praying an imprecatory prayer as he asks for the shame of his enemies for their lies. He's asking that God would just be just in his dealing with them. He also is seeking to be an example to others, not just a source of joy, but an example to others. And lastly, to have a blameless heart. 
so that he would not be ashamed. A heart of that word blameless in verse 80, you might see in the margin, a complete heart, a heart that has integrity so that he will not be ashamed because if he lives in such a way that he is inconsistent with God's word and he sins, um, he'll be ashamed of that. And of course, in this section, as the others, these are prayers. Give me understanding. He's talking to God directly. I know, O Lord, verse 75, O may your loving kindness, may your compassion, may, may, may. These are petitions that he's making, and so it's prayer. But then there's also, of course, uh, a focus on the word of God. He wants understanding of God's word. He waits for God's word. He knows that God's judgments, and while God acts in judgment, he also speaks in judgments. As he speaks and makes a judgment, his judgments are right. As he judges and acts in our lives, his judgments are always right. And he, by faith, says, I know that your judgments are righteous. He believes that comfort will come to him in keeping with God's promise to him. So he's trusting in God's promise. Again, as he has said before, he is delighting in God's law. Verse 77, for your law is my delight. Verse 70 in the previous stanza, I delight in your law. We could find that all over this psalm. And the psalm itself is evidence that he is delighting in God's law. And he determines or he resolves, verse 78, to meditate on God's precepts. I shall meditate on your precepts. I don't believe we're going to look at that verse in full tonight, but in the context of verse 78, there are lies, and he could choose to think about the lies, or in the place of the lies, he could think about the truth. And it's his desire, his resolution to meditate on God's precepts. And then, of course, those who fear God, who know his testimonies, he wants to be a, he wants to be a witness or a, an example to them. I think that's the sense of verse 79. So there are themes. This is prayer. This is focused on the word of God. But there is this current of affliction that I think we can see from the previous stanza and here. Uh, verse 75 in particular, in faithfulness, you have afflicted me. Somebody is looking for comfort and they're looking for compassion. It's in the context of affliction that a person most desires that. I believe that's what he's asking. And I also believe his desire to be a joy to others and an example to them is in the midst of that affliction. And it is challenging to go through affliction and be an example. It's challenging to go through hardship and trials and be a joy to others. It takes God's grace. It takes his help. And so as we go through this stanza, as we begin the stanza tonight, I'm just going to call it a portrait of faith in affliction. Just a picture of what faith looks like in affliction. A portrait of faith and affliction.
The first thing that he confesses here in verse 73 is his creator. doesn't use the word creator, but obviously from his words in verse 73, he says, your hands made me and fashioned me or formed me. Established me is another possible translation of that word. God, as creator, he is confessing, has made him and established him. He's confessing God as his personal creator. This is obviously faith that recognizes God as the creator of all things, but in addition to creating all things, that he created me personally. And this is personal because he says, your hands. It's as if God is a potter or some kind of a skilled workman. And it's his very hands that have brought him certainly into existence and then fashioned him. The word combination of words is also used in Job 31, as Job says that he and his slaves were made by the same God. He says, did not he who made me in the womb make him, referring to his slave, the same one fashion us in the womb? So this is the God who makes every single person slave or free. We read in the Proverbs, the poor and the rich, God has made everything and everyone, and he's made them according to his purpose. And as he makes, he does course, give wisdom and intimate care to each person that he makes. We're made in his image. That's a broad picture, but your life, who you are, he has made you. David confessed this in Psalm 139. We, we know these words. You formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you. For I am fearfully and wonderfully made. And so there's an application immediately as to when we think about God being our creator, praising him for making us. And then he says, wonderful are your works and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance and in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me when as yet there was not one of them. When we think about God creating us and establishing us or founding us, we have to remember he created us not only in terms of our physical body, our soul, who we are, but also he has a plan for our life. He has many thoughts, David said in Psalm 139. How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I should count them, they would outnumber the sand. When I'm awake, I, or excuse me, when I awake, I'm still with you. Now that confession in Psalm 139 is kind of, you might say, an elaboration on what he says here. He's just elaborating on the nature of God being his creator, the one who made him, the one who established him. Spurgeon said, with careful skill and the power of his hands, formed us and made us. He took a personal interest in us. 
he was doubly thoughtful for he is represented as both making us and forming us and giving both existence and arranging existence. The Lord manifested love and wisdom. And therefore, and again, his application is the same as David's in Psalm 139. We find reasons for praise, confidence, and expectation in our being and well-being. Your hands made me and fashioned me. That really gives purpose to every day. You think about it. God, you made me. What is your will for me today? And in order to know God's will, we need understanding. And so his next petition after confessing God as his creator is, give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. The very question or the petition assumes his accountability to God and that God is also the source of his intelligence or his knowledge. God's the creator. God is also the source of wisdom for his creatures. He also holds his creatures accountable. They are accountable to him. Now, we could certainly say the pages of scripture, we understand that we lost something in the fall. We didn't lose all knowledge, but we now have ignorance and a lack of understanding. And of course, we're bent towards sin. So we need God's grace and his help. We need to be, as Colossians says, through salvation and through sanctification, renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. That's why Paul says we're not to lie. He says, do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self who is being renewed. Renewed in what? Renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of one who created him. God is a truth teller. And to accurately picture God as someone made in the image of God and as a child of God, certainly we need to be truth tellers. We need to speak what is true and right. So this ignorance that we have this lack of understanding certainly can be remedied if we just pray to our creator who made us, who has the knowledge, who has actually given us the knowledge in his word. But in addition to giving us his word, he also gives us an understanding of his word. And for that, I believe David is certainly praying, give me understanding that I may learn your, and here's where you see the authority, not just the accountability, but also the authority says that I may learn your commandments, the orders, the directions of God. And not just direction as if you can take it if you want it, it's direction for life. So if God has made you, he has taken of, of any being in the universe, great interest in you more than anyone else. He knows more about you than you know about yourself. And he has a purpose for your life. Part of that purpose as you're made in his image is to obey him, to bring glory to him as you show forth his glory in your life. So this is a wonderful prayer. Praying for understanding. Praying that God would give an awareness of what my, certainly my obligations are to him, but that I can live in such a way as to really fulfill his purpose. What on earth are we here for? 
And if you're living for yourself, you're living for some cause other than God's glory and his purposes, you are misguided. It's the fear of the Lord that's the beginning of wisdom. That's the path that we are to walk on through life. God's way, his word, obeying his commandments. This is the path that he calls us to. Christ, of course, is the way as we follow him. He is walking on that way. And that's a, that's a wonderful life. It's a, it's a life filled with joy, right? Brother Tim was mentioning, it's, it's a life filled with joy. Even though there may be pain, there certainly is joy. In this gospel primer for Christians, we give away the abbreviated copy to anybody who visits our church, but there's a bigger copy that's fuller. And as uh, Milton Vincent describes that we are made for his glory, he says it this way. My God is immense beyond imagination. He measured the entire universe with merely the span of his hand. He is unimaginably awesome in all of his perfections, absolutely righteous, holy, and just in all of his ways. He has also been unbelievably good and merciful to me as the creator and sustainer of my life. Every breath, every heartbeat, every function of every organ in my body is a gift from him. Every legitimate pleasure I experience is a gift from his loving hand to me. All that I am and all that I have, I owe to him and to his goodness. My life in every way is and will continue to be utterly dependent upon him in whom I live and move and have my being. You can see he's quoting from scripture even as he's saying these words. And then he says, this wonderful God is the most supremely worthy object of admiration, honor, and delight in all of the universe. And he has created me with the intention that I might glorify him by finding my soul's delight in him and by living in joyful obedience to him in all of my ways. And if I'm going to do that, if I'm going to live in joyful obedience to him in all of my ways, I mean, that prayer certainly makes sense, doesn't it? Give me understanding. Give me understanding. That's what I want to do, but I need understanding. That's his heart's desire. Your hands have made me, confessing his creator, but then asking for understanding so that he can obey and live his life in the light of who God is and who he's supposed to be. And in that, look at verse 74, transition to the next verse here. He says, may those who fear you see me and be glad. Why? Well, if God gives him understanding and he's walking according to God's commandments, that would be cause for their rejoicing if they fear the Lord too. But he also, in context of the prayer in verse 74, he wants something very specific. And that is that as he lives, he wants to be a source of joy to others as he waits on or hopes in God's word. You might see that in the margin for the word wait, that that word is also translated hope. And you can see that throughout the Psalms, that word wait. 
it's not waiting just to no end. It's waiting with the expectation that something is going to take place. If I'm waiting on God, I'm waiting for him to do something. I'm hoping in him, trusting with confident expectation that he's going to act and fulfill my hope. That's the idea of hope. But let's just back up for a moment. Look at the first part of that verse. Have you ever prayed that you would be a blessing to others? That you in your life would be a source of joy to other people? That by your behavior, by your attitude, by who you are, by what you do, you would bring joy and encouragement, gladness to other people. I think it's a great example for us of the kind of prayer we ought to pray. David wants to be a source of joy for others, specifically those who fear the Lord. Notice he says, may those who fear you see me. May they look at me, pay attention to me, and have joy because of whatever's taking place in my life. We certainly would want to bring the Lord joy. But in addition to that, others who fear God, who know God and actually fear him, the word that is translated glad here, you can find in many places in Scripture, it could be uh, the kind of rejoicing for victory in battle, or Hannah talked about rejoicing in God's salvation. Oftentimes, the object of rejoicing is God himself. There are those who are glad in the Lord in the Psalms. Or it could be some truth about God, his loving kindness. Psalm 31, 7 says, I will rejoice in your loving kindness. But what David is asking for here is that there would be those who fear him, who look at his life and look at his actions and say, I'm so glad at what is taking place in his life. And the very thing that he's talking about is his trust in, his hope in God's word. Those who fear the Lord do hope in God's word. I'm just going to remind us of that definition of the fear of the Lord that Charles Bridges gave. He described it as that affectionate reverence by which the child of God bends himself humbly and carefully to his father's law. His wrath is so bitter and his love so sweet that hence springs an earnest desire to please him. And because of the danger of coming short from his own weakness and temptations, a holy watchfulness and fear that he might not sin against him. This enters into every exercise of the mind, every object of life. Okay, now David certainly feared the Lord, but he's actually talking about his friends. Remember, he said, I am a companion of those who fear you. He wants those who are accompanying him in this pilgrimage of life to be encouraged at what they're seeing in his life, which involves, and I'm going to review another point that we looked at in a previous message, and that is that the fear of God, Albert Martin said, involves three things. First of all, it has to do with correct concepts of the character of God, that he's majestic in holiness. a pervasive sense of the presence of God. You see in Scripture, when someone becomes aware of the presence of God, they fall down on their face. There's an awareness, but also 
in that awareness, a recognition of the greatness and glory and even goodness of God. And then the third thing he said is that it involves a constraining awareness of our obligations to God. He said to live in the fear of God is not just to know who he is and that he's here. It's also to recognize that in any circumstance in which I find myself, the most important issue is my present obligations to this great God who is here. Do you fear the Lord? Do you know who he is according to his word, not according to your own imagination, but what his word teaches about him? And then in knowing that, not just his greatness, but also his goodness, do you know that that same God who is great, glorious in holiness and majesty is also near to us? He's present with us. He's with us by his spirit. To know that such a great being is in our presence and with us would, if we have faith and trust in that and a right relationship to him, it would change things. And for those who knew that they were in God's presence, it was worship. It was on their face before him. And certainly, what would you have me to do, Lord? And it's... That kind of a person, David says, may those who fear you, those who were his companions, he wanted them to be glad because he too was trusting in the faithfulness of God's word. He's waiting for it. His confident expectation is that God will bring to pass what he said he would do. Hope when you think about what hope is, and I'm keying in on that word wait in the second part of that verse, hope or waiting, is a confident expectation. It's like faith, except that it has something in view that is forward. It looks for something to be accomplished. Hope uh, unfulfilled makes the heart sick. It's that hope that looks forward for the fulfillment of whatever the object of hope is. That's hope. And in the context of this verse, it's hoping that God will fulfill whatever his word is to David. If I hope in God's word, I do believe that what he has said will come to pass, whatever it is. I believe that his promises, which he has made in his word, are true and will happen. I believe that there's a reward for obedience, as he has said. I also believe, if I am expecting God's word to be true, that there is discipline for disobedience. And when I interpret my life and my experience, I do that if I'm hoping in terms of God, his purposes for me, his sovereignty over me. Okay? So when I'm in affliction, I have to look at that affliction through that lens. I can't look at it from just the standpoint of what brings me pain or, or not pain. If I start to think in those terms, I'm not going to be happy or joyful in affliction. If I remember that when God is afflicting me, when he uses some circumstance in my life and brings me pain so that there will be change, I can, if I think with the, uh, the, the a heart of faith, I understand that God is at work in us who believe to change us, to be more like Christ. And so I can count it all joy, James chapter one, when I fall into various trials, 
because I know that when I fall into all those trials that God is perfecting me, he's changing me, he's doing a work in me that is building endurance, building faith, building hope, pressing me to pray to him for wisdom, which I don't have. I'm just trying to think according to James 1. That's what God is doing, if I'm interpreting my circumstance in the light of God. And you know what? When you find someone who is interpreting their circumstances in light of God is at work, and sometimes my sin is the issue, not always, but sometimes my sin is the issue, but somebody's interpreting things that way. It's such a blessing to watch someone go through affliction, but they're trusting. It's like Job who said, though he slay me, though he, he take my life, I will still trust him because I know who he is. I know that he's good. I know he has a good purpose for me. Spurgeon said, when a man of God obtains grace for himself, he, he becomes a blessing to others, especially if that grace is made of a man of sound understanding and holy knowledge. God-fearing people are encouraged when they meet with experienced believers. A hopeful man is sent a gift sent by God when things are going downhill or when he's in danger. And when the hopes of one believer are fulfilled, his companions are made glad, strengthened, and led to hope also. He's just talking about the influence of one person who experiences the grace of God, and then those around see that. I mean, look at all he's going through. Look at all she's going through. And they're still trusting in God. They're not giving up. I don't think it's by any accident that Bunyan named one of his characters in Pilgrim's Progress hopeful. There was faithful, but there's also hopeful. And... What a blessing it is to be around someone who is hopeful in their life. When they came to the end and they're about to cross the river, which is death, and they have this expectation that they're going to go through a difficult experience, and it really is a river, they ask, can you touch the bottom and the two men in shining garments said, in some places. And Christian isn't so hopeful, but hopeful is still hopeful. And hopeful is still right at the end of his life, encouraging Christian, giving him hope. When Christian thinks, no, I've gotten this far, but I'm not actually going to make it, hopeful says, yes, you are. Don't forget. And as he shares what he shares, he's sharing God's word. He's giving him God's word again and again. And it's a beautiful thing to see Christian cross that river and find encouragement in the process. And at one point, it says that Christian broke out in a loud voice and said, speaking of God, oh, I see him again. And he tells me, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overflow you. 
says, then the two pilgrims both took courage. The enemy became as still as a stone until they had crossed over. Christian discovered solid ground for his feet to stand upon. And so it turned out that once he found his footing, that the rest of the river was actually shallow and the two of them crossed over. But how did he make it? Now we know that in death, when we are called to die. There may be others near us. We have to pass through that ourselves. But it is a wonderful thing in those moments to know that when I go through the valley of the shadow of death, that God is with me, that he's near to me, that I don't need to fear because the same one I trusted in in life is actually there to bring me into his presence. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord He has passed that way before, and he will bring me safely home. We need some hopefuls in our lives, don't we? And I just ask you, are you one? Can you be a hopeful person? Are your words filled with hope? And I would say this, that if your meditation is on this book. There is plenty of hope here. And this hope is not just for you. This is for you. And as it fills your heart and builds you up and you are strengthened, then there's also strength that you can give to others. You see, Hopeful didn't have it in himself either. Hopeful found hope in the same source. It was in God. It was in his word. So this book is the book of hope. The God who wrote this is the God of hope. It's about the hope of eternal life. It's about the hope of heaven. But even our hope in this life is that his grace will be with us. It is with us. I want to just encourage you. You can have a ministry to others, even as you just simply are hopeful in God, in your experience, And by your life, you live that way. People seeing that can be built up, encouraged, and gladdened. You can be a source of joy in other people's lives. And I can say from interacting with you over time, I've seen that in our church family. I've seen that in other Christian friends where there is hope. And I'm encouraged because I'm seeing other people encouraged. Now, sometimes those ways in which it's not just people watching us, but it's the words that we share with one another. So I just encourage you by way of application to give each other hope, hope-filled words. And when someone gives you a hope-filled word, take that hope-filled word. Don't always just dismiss it and be down in the dumps. I don't think that's God's purpose for us is to always be in Doubting castle with giant despair. Do you have reason hope? I'm going to go back to the gospel primer. We'll end here. Milton Vincent said, the more I experience the riches of Christ in the gospel, the more there develops within me a yearning to be with Christ in heaven where I will experience his grace in unhindered fullness. That's a hope-filled statement. 
The reason for this yearning is simple. However great may be the present blessings of salvation, they are but the first fruits of the Spirit, the first installments of an unimaginably great harvest of glory, which I will reap forever in heaven. The Apostle Paul could not rehearse gospel blessing in in Romans 5 through 8 without being reminded of his anxious longing for the future glories awaiting believers in heaven. Remember what Paul said in Romans chapter 5, that we exult in the hope of the glory of God. We greatly rejoice in the confident expectation, not in the sense of the glory of God in that he's in intrinsically glorious, but in that we will share that glory. There will be a glory that is revealed in us. Grace has begun in our lives, but once that comes to fruit, there will be a glorious experience like no other when all of the sin that clouds my mind and heart and messes up my life will be no longer, and I will be like Christ, body, soul, spirit, sanctified, holy. So we exult in the hope of the glory of God. He says, likewise, the Apostle John could not speak of his and his readers' status as children of God without also relishing the beautification they will experience at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What is he talking about? He's talking about 1 John chapter 3 where John is talking about, behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called the children of God, and such we are. And we know that when we see him, we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. There will be a transformation where we will become like Christ. And then he says, every man who has this hope in him is purifying himself. In anticipation for that meeting, And that time, there's a present cleansing and change that's taking place. That's what John was talking about. He says, likewise, the apostle John could not speak of his and his reader's status as children of God without also relishing the beautification they will experience at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Neither will I be able to think long upon gospel blessings without also thinking of the infinite glories which will be mine to enjoy in heaven. Such a gospel-generated heavenward focus yields enormous benefits to me while on earth. The mere hope of seeing Christ in glory releases the purifying influence of heaven upon my life from day to day. Also knowing of the future love that God will show to me in glory enables me to love my fellow saints with heaven-inspired love even now. I love others out of the fullness already given to me in Christ and also out of the greater fullness that will be given to me in glory. I can't help but thinking about that thought without thinking about Jonathan Edwards' sermons on 1 Corinthians 13 and one of his main points, heaven is a world of love. It's a world of love. Perfect, mutual, unending love between God and his children, and his children, and one another. You're never going to have unrequited or a lack of that reciprocal love. It's always going to be there. That's part of what heaven is going to, that's going to make heaven heaven. 
I love others to repeat out of the fullness already given to me in Christ and also out of the greater fullness that will be given to me in glory. Hope of eternity with Christ in heaven also enables my heart to thrive during the most difficult and lengthy of trials here on earth. When looking at the sheer weight of unseen glories to come, my troubles seem light by comparison. And when looking at the staggering length of eternity, my troubles seem fleeting by comparison. Now, they don't feel like that when you're in them, right? But they do have to be compared with that glory that awaits us. It's when you do that that you start to see the littleness. And I'm not trying to lessen the pain that you might be feeling because you're going through something here. But just realize that there's something that totally overbalances that, that helps you to see there's something great awaiting me. And if this affliction is contributing to that future glory, now I don't like praying for more pain, but that experience contributes to what Paul says is a greater weight of glory. Hope of eternity with Christ in heaven, I'm backing up again, with Christ in heaven enables my heart also to thrive during the most difficult and lengthy of trials here on earth when looking at the sheer weight of unseen glories to come. My troubles seem light in comparison, and when looking at the staggering length of eternity, my troubles seem fleeting by comparison. It is only against the backdrop of a glorious eternity that my circumstances can be seen in such a manner and the promise of this glorious eternity is part and parcel of the gospel itself. So then he says, and this is why it's the gospel primer, preaching the gospel to myself every day is a great way to keep myself established in the hope of the gospel so that I may or might experience the practical benefits that such hope is intended to bring me here on earth. Are you hoping in the Lord? Are you waiting for his word? He's made promises to us in the gospel. I just, he just gave us some of those. Is God true? God is true. Am I going to trust in those and wait for his word? And I think what the psalmist, what David here is praying is that as I do that, I wait and hope in the promises of the gospel, the promises that God has made, that my life can then be a blessing to others, an encouragement, a joy. Praise the Lord and may the Lord help us. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Lord, without your help, without your answering these prayers to give us understanding so that we might learn your commandments, without us praying that your grace would enable us to wait for your word, we would not be a help or a joy to others. But when you answer our petitions, and certainly these have been given to us as an example, help us, Lord, to pray these. And give us grace, Lord, to see the fruit of their answers in our lives.
Help us, Lord, to be a people of hope. Help us to give one another hope. And we pray, even as we go through a new week, that we would be hope dispensing all around us. For those who have no hope and are without God in this world, Lord, we ask for grace to be able to tell them that there is hope in Jesus Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Let's turn to 521. Stand with me.